All right, everyone, and welcome to the Health Conscious Podcast. I'm Peyton, and I'm joined with Christian. Christian, how are you today? I'm doing well. My name hasn't changed. I'm still here. I'm still Christian, so so here we are. Um, and just really quickly to all of our listeners, we would love to hear from you. You know, we just are kind of starting a new year and starting new episodes on Health Conscious Podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you think about our episodes thus far, um, any suggestions for potential topics to explore or guests to reach out to. Uh, we're thinking of you and consistently trying to make our podcast better for our listeners. So please reach out to us. Our email is in the description of the podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We really appreciate your feedback. If you also think that you might be able to provide us with some interesting topics or anything, feel free to please reach out. Um, also, be sure to follow us on social media. We'll put that in the description of the podcast below. We'd love for you to keep updated about future episodes of the podcast. But um, Christian, I'm glad your name hasn't changed. Um, that's a good thing. And I'm really excited about our guest today. Um, Dr. Dan Gentry is our guest. He's currently the president and CEO of AU. PHA, the Association of University Programs in Health Administration. He recently started that role last year, um, but prior to that, he was the program director for the University of Iowa, um, also for the University of Memphis, Rush University Medical Center, and for St. Louis University. Um, so he's got had a long career in academia um, before moving to this role as well. Um, he has taught in areas of healthcare organization and management, organizational behavior, human resources. His research has included financing, delivery of prevention and care services, tobacco policy, evaluation of health and social services programs, et cetera. He's also the chair of ACHE's LGBTQ Forum. So we're really excited for him to talk more about what AUPHA does and his experiences um, as a program director, and what he believes students can do to set themselves up for success in the long term as they begin a career in healthcare administration. So we'll pass it over to Dan. All right, Dr. Gentry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Christian and Peyton, and please call me Dan. Uh, my graduate students have uh, have always been invited to come. A lot of them can't make the transition, but most of them do. So I prefer to Dan. I prefer Dan. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much, Dan. We're so excited to learn a little bit more about your wealth of experience and knowledge that you've had um, year and years of uh, directing graduate programs um, in academia. So uh, just to kind of start us off and kind of as a bridge from your introduction, um, would you mind explaining us a little bit more about AUPHA and how students and future healthcare leaders should be involved in the organization? Absolutely. So AUPHA is the Association of University Programs and Health Administration. Um, it uh, was founded in 1948. So within just another couple of years, we're coming up on our 75th anniversary, um, an organization that's always had an extremely close relationship with ACHE and the American Hospital Association, still do. Both those organizations are still corporate partners for AUPHA. And all three of us uh, we're integral in terms of founding the accreditation agency that's specifically for healthcare management, CAMI as well in 1967, 1968. So at this point, AUPHA continues to grow. Gosh, I think we had 13 new university members just last year and already two new members for 2021. So we are, AUPHA is about 255, 260 programs undergraduate, master's, and doctoral programs in healthcare management, healthcare policy across almost 200 universities. A lot of universities will have 
an undergraduate and a master's degree or a master's and a doctoral degree, some all three. And so uh, many of our universities have all three memberships. So we are primarily an organization, uh, not a student organization. Uh, although uh, I think a lot of the work that we do clearly benefits students because our entire mission is about uh, excelling, improving healthcare management and health policy education. And so our primary membership are your faculty. You know, the folks in the Sloan program at Cornell, they are very involved in AUPHA. I used to see them all often. Now I see them all on computer screens fairly often. Um, but uh, we do a couple of big meetings every year. We have a workshop that's embedded within ACHE Congress. This year, again, that's virtual, of course, and we're finalizing the planning for that right now. And then we have our largest meeting, a meeting for about 400, 450 people um, in June. And that meeting moves around. So last year it was supposed to be in Salt Lake City. Um, it got canceled. We did it virtually. We were able to reschedule for 2022 for Salt Lake City. This June it's supposed to be in Tampa. Fingers crossed that we get to be there, but probably with a smaller footprint. So we are the organization, like all the med schools have AAMC. The nursing schools have the nursing association of all their programs. Pharmacy has a program for all the pharmacy programs and pharmacy schools, and AUPHA is the similar program for healthcare management. So while our primary art audience is faculty and programs and executives and residents and adjunct faculty who are practitioners who teach in programs, certainly everything we do, um, we hope, benefits students that are being served by our programs. And as I was telling you a little bit earlier in the pre-planning, um, anything that we do with regard to webinars, events, that it looks like could benefit students. I mean, so yesterday, um, uh, 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 earlier this week, we had a session on scaffolding, which is about how to, how, how, to build, how to use the building blocks for teaching, for learning. Well, that might not be so interesting <laughs> for students, but we did a lot of things last spring with regard to, we did a panel for what does the job market look like in COVID-19 and post-COVID-19. In fact, Sean at Cornell was one of our panelists. We had a couple of practitioners, a couple of academics. Obviously that is very interesting for students. So within just a week or so, we put that out on our website. And then last May, we wrapped all of that up together. And there were about six webinars that we felt were really good for students. And we sort of gifted them in honor of the 2020 graduates who weren't really getting to have all the graduation ceremonies and festivities they normally do and i put out a video on linkedin and we put all those out on the uh, on the website so while we aren't geared towards students i think we both directly and indirectly benefit students the one exception there is uh doctoral students clearly that's the pipeline for the folks that are going to be faculty at some point and researchers and so we do um, have a particular track in our annual meeting for doctoral programs and doctoral students. But uh, if I were given advice for an undergraduate in health administration or graduate students in health administration and policy, use your resources first to go to organization, to go to meetings like ACHE or HFMA or MGMA or IHI, um, instead of you know, coming to a, a meeting where it's mostly about teachers and, and teaching. Yeah. See, yeah, thank you so much for drawing that distinction. Um, just on behalf of students, we're so grateful for the work that AUPHA does. Um, although we're, albeit we're, we're kind of indirect uh, beneficiaries of the work that you do. Um, Dan, one of the things that I've, I've kind of heard buzz about is that higher education is an industry or a sector that's ripe for, for disruption. 
Um, so, so what do you think, I just wanted to hear your take on that, and what do you think higher education institutions need to do in order to kind of adapt as, as the higher education incumbent from things like, you know, online learning and other things like that, other ways of learning uh, virtually um, in order to prevent disruption from these alternative educational methods? You know, what, what new value adds can be provided? It's a fantastic question. And I think we've, we've hit on some of these in a few of our webinars and our events during the last year. But we probably need to focus more uh, directly on this. Um, it's interesting, AUPHA, like ACHE and the Accrediting Commission, are at the intersection of healthcare and healthcare delivery and higher education. I mean, that's our, that's our wheelhouse. That's where we are. Um, and interestingly enough, if you go back uh, from an economic perspective and look at downturns in the economy, whether they be recessions or depressions or close to depressions like we had in 2002, 2008, 2009, um, healthcare and higher education have always been the most resilient parts of the economy. Everything else would take a hit and healthcare and higher education just kept on rolling. You know, folks are gonna send the, uh, young folks to college, to universities, people wanna get their degrees, they need that. That's what their plan has been to pursue the careers they wanna have. And people are always gonna need healthcare. And so even while there were bumps in the rest of the economy, those two kept going. And to some extent, they've been shielded from some of the environmental factors. And I think what COVID's done for us is we're seeing for the first time the opposite because it was an infectious disease, um, because it was it became an epidemic, um, higher education and healthcare are the two parts of the industry that it may have affected the most, along with some of the other service industries like where people get their food, their groceries, uh, where people get their pharmaceuticals, uh, those kinds of things. And so I don't think we were prepared for the crisis. I mean, you know, for decades, we've been talking about um, healthcare and healthcare in crisis and the numbers of people without insurance and the number of people without good access to care. Um, and how inefficient our system is because of the way, not that it was designed, but it wasn't designed. It is not a system that was designed. It is a system, system that you both learned that grew out of historical artifacts with regard to the Industrial Revolution and World War II, um, you know, all benefits versus salary. I mean, all of these things that uh, contributed to the system that we have right now. Um, I, I, I think that, that, that a lot of futurists saw the crises coming in higher education as well. I mean, we've built something now like we did healthcare that people can't afford. I mean, the only way they can afford it for many people is borrowing a lot of money and accumulating a lot of loan debt. And you're hearing more and more about this. And I think that's good. I think it's great that this has made it to the national agenda in terms of the presidential election and other uh, elected officials. We've got to do something about this. I mean. The, the prices, the costs can't keep going up. We've got to figure out a way to deliver higher education more efficiently. Um, and I think that what COVID's done is it's forced that upon us. I don't think there's any going back. Yes, I, I love face-to-face -face interaction. I don't think there's anything, particularly if you're gonna go into healthcare and you're helping people and you wanna improve the human condition. I don't think there's anything to replace the, the, the real time, real person interaction, but there's a lot that we can do virtually. And there's a lot that we can do more efficiently. Does it really take four years to get 
an undergraduate degree? Should it really take four years? Should it be three instead? Some universities have already moved in that direction. Can we use more hybrid? Uh, not only, uh, you know, a, cor a course is either online or virtual, but some mix of that, like what's being done during COVID-19. Uh, I think that we would benefit from more places thinking about um, what we call 4-1 or 3-2 degrees, where someone gets both an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree in a consolidated uh, period of time. And, and then there are just lots of additional efficiencies in terms of the way colleges and universities operate. And so I think we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, whether or not that means a disruption like what happened to transportation with regard to Uber and Lyft, I mean, that's a disruption. I mean, and you've both studied this as well. I know you've got you know, courses you can take in innovation and entrepreneurism, but that kind of disruption we haven't seen. Folks thought that might happen. Um, you know, when um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway um, and then um, was it Bank of America or Chase um, that went in and Atul Gawande was involved. Yeah, Atul Gawande was involved in this and everyone's like, oh, look, these people, they're gonna disrupt healthcare. Not much happened and it's just disappeared, you know, within the last, what, six, five or six months or so. So it, when you've got a, a system like we've built that is so in place and so taken for granted and all these bricks and mortar, it would take a huge disruption to change things. And so I think it's still gonna to continue to be innovating around the edges uh, instead of some major disruption, unless something comes along that nobody's thought about at this point. Excellent, yeah, thanks for, for walking us through that. So innovating around the edges instead of kind of the, the Uber Uber shakeup. That's, that's, that's a great perspective. <laughs> Building off of what you're speaking about at, of um, AUPHA kind of at the cross section of healthcare delivery and higher education. Um, you know, the healthcare system is so broad with so many different stakeholders. And I have been very satisfied with the education that I've received about the, this complicated, convoluted system with so many different stakeholders and their various incentives. But at the same time, this is, I know that this is a system in an industry that I could, that I will spend my whole career learning about and understanding deeper and deeper and deeper. So how do you go about building a two-year curriculum that prepares future healthcare leaders with all the, the, the you know, the, the knowledge that they need to kickstart their careers in healthcare? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's um, about mission for our individual programs. <laughs> for AUPHA, Christian, it's about being the big tent. So, um, you know, we've got undergraduate programs, we've got graduate programs. Some of our graduate programs are accredited by CAMI, others are accredited by C for AACSB for business schools. So we are the big tent, like ACHE is the big tent. You don't have to have a particular degree from a particular university to get involved in ACHE. Now that's a very different perspective than the perspective I had as a program director where I was even more focused on mission and vision. And uh, it's about what do you want to be as a program what do you want the emphasis to be? What are you educating students to know and be able to do in that two years or still three years for some of our programs that require the residency at the end? We've still got about six programs that do that. Um, so what would you, you know, what's your focus going to be? I'll give you a good example. So I was at Rush for four years. Amazing experience. Rush is a practitioner teacher model completely embedded in the Rush Medical Center, the Rush System for Health. 60% of the curriculum led by the practitioners, 
who were doing that work on a day-to-day -day basis. I loved the model, but I would have, we would have people, and, and while I was there that four years, I think we tripled or quadrupled the, the applicant pool. And we'd have students come in and occasionally I would have students come in and say, you know, I'm really thinking about uh, a career in pharma or in a higher healthcare, high finance. And I'm like, well, this isn't the program for you. You've got to be honest with people. So the Rush program is about students who want a career in organizations that are delivering healthcare or in organizations that are working with organizations that deliver healthcare, like consulting organizations. And I had to tell people, honestly, and I think more people should do this, that if you really want to go into supply chain or pharma or some other part of the industry, in addition to healthcare and healthcare delivery, you know, go look to Wharton or to Northwestern or to University of Miami, you know, uh, which all are credible programs, either have MHAs or MBAs with concentrations in healthcare, uh, but they focus on those kinds of things. So, um, so I, now the other thing that, that happened historically, um, and this is sort of getting into the weeds and I won't spend long at it, but uh, in the late 1990s, we were hearing from a lot of the industry, you're not producing the graduates that we need. They're really smart. They know a lot, but they're not coming out with a lot of skills. And so there was a big push to move to competency-based education. I know you've heard about this in orientation and every class you go into, what are the competencies in the Sloan program? You both could tell me what the domains are and what the competencies are, um, what competencies are covered in each class. And I will tell you that I have been privileged to be involved in that shift, both at AUPHA and at CAMI, and uh, uh, did boot camps at CAMI for years, uh, from 2007 to just two years ago, helping programs move to competency-based education. It's made a huge difference. And so what are the most important things that we need to teach and that students need to learn during the two or three years that you have them in the program? Well, those competencies for Cornell or for Rush or for Iowa need to relate back to what the mission is. What are you trying to teach students to do? What should they be able to do at the end of those? And you know, th th that two years of learning is your first learning. I mean, you need to be lifelong learners and you know, continuing education. That's what being involved in ACHE or HFMA or HIMSS or MGMA is all about. Uh, the other advice that I like to give students is, and I think this was particularly the case over the last year, is, uh, you know, everything's virtual. There's not a lot of interaction. There's not a, as many events. You've got a little more time on your hands. Hopefully people are spending it well. And I've seen a lot of evidence that they are on LinkedIn. Um, there are lots of other things you can do. Go out and get uh, certified in project management, start to get certified in some of the first HFMA financial management certifications that you can get, uh, get more involved in quality with regard to lean and Six Sigma, get yourself credentialed there, get some additional learning, many more things that, uh, that you can do. And some programs have actually even begin, begun to embed some of that in their programs. They want to be known as, as educating uh, graduate students for healthcare administration uh, generally, but they've also embedded some additional emphasis there. A good example is University of North Texas Health Sciences Center in Fort Worth uh, just uh, put in place um, a system that will get all of their uh, all of their students credentialed uh, in quality and quality management from um, NC NCAQ NCQA. I get the abbreviations wrong, but it's uh, it's an organization. It's the organization for practice for people involved in 
uh, quality and process improvement. Um, so th those are just a those are just a few ideas. Yeah, those are all all very wonderful wonderful thoughts too. I, I like that idea of really drilling down into mission and vision and, and placement and in the specific programs. And you know, with the pandemic, many students are having to choose a graduate program. I've spoken to many of them without visiting a campus like sight unseen yeah. pretty much, right? And I, and I can empathize with this after signing a job offer without ever shaking anybody from, from Chen Med's hand or, you know, being, being here in person as well. And so I think that's all, all wonderful advice um, as students and, and maybe some of our listeners that are applying to, to programs um, to, to take about kind of <laughs> blindly um, choosing a, a graduate program. That's tough. Yeah. I mean, that, those are some of my favorite days uh, at Iowa. We would bring in 16 at a time, 16, um, you know, we would have uh, start uh, late November uh, and have some visit days. Uh, we'd already gone through the process, you know, of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, telling someone they were under consideration or not. And then we would bring in eight to 16 um, you know, uh, applicants at a time and everybody was involved. I mean, I would spend, they would each have interviews with two faculty members, an alumni, 30 minutes. And then I was spent 15 minutes with every person that came through as the program director. They would have dinner the night before with students. They would have lunch with students the next day. I mean, it was just this full immersion experience, everything. And occasionally they'd sit in on classes, but just about everything but that. It is a completely different experience virtually. It is not the group experience. It's not, you know, you're not already meeting people that you know that you're, it was funny because, you know, they would come in and they would already get to know each other and they would be friends and colleagues even before matriculating to the program. And oftentimes, and you've, all, you've both, both been through this process before, before COVID, you'd see the same people on some of the interview <laughs> visits as well in terms of you know, people that were applying to the same five or six or seven programs that you were applying to. So it, it is a completely different experience. And, and I really feel for students. And that's the reason that I put out last May that special video message congratulating all the graduates. <laughs> I felt a little silly. I put my cap on from my cap and gown and I had a little uh, circum, you know, the, the music in the background that you play for graduation. But that's the reason we wanted to do something special for all of the undergraduate and graduates that were graduating because this is a different period and it's not what you expected. And, you know, the two of you got to enter the Sloan program in sort of normative time, pre-COVID, um, but you're experiencing this as well. I mean, you know, it's going to turn out that 75% of your graduate experience uh, is, is during COVID-19. And it's a very different experience. I, I do think it makes you, it's going to make you more resilient. It's going to make you more nimble. Um, I think we're seeing, uh, and I think Christian, you know, I don't know what you were thinking about doing before, um, you know, when you first came into the program, either one of you, but I think it, it also means, and this was advice given in the panel last spring, where we talked about jobs. Uh, oh, and I would encourage all the students that, that listen to the podcast, AUPHA has a specific site on our website, specifically for students. It has resources for students. There are probably 10 or 12 recordings out there of webinars so far. And one of the ones we did last spring was about the job market because of COVID-19 and post-COVID-19. Five people on the panel, really great advice. And part of the advice was think more broadly. You may have been thinking about, this is what I wanna do. Well, at least for now, you may need to think more broadly as we know that there were somewhere around uh, 25 to 30, maybe a little higher than that, less fellowships last round. 
than there have been before. So people are going to have to get uh, more creative, maybe be a little more flexible, at least in the immediate time period. I think that things are going to come back. I don't, I don't know uh, if you saw, but uh, certainly faculty and program directors pay attention to this. The new list just came out based on labor department statistics and research uh, and some other metrics that US News and World Report uses. And for uh, overall jobs for the next couple of years, uh, the, the growth, the attractiveness, the salaries for health services administrators, number four on the list. And for business jobs, number one on the list. So you're going into a great field, a great career at the right time. It may not feel that because feel like that because of what's going on to COVID-19, but uh, I'm really optimistic about the future. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I think the advice of think more broadly is, is relevant and helpful. Um, and I know thinking back to when I was a teacher, it was something and a conversation I had quite a, quite frequently with students as well. Um, you know, even in the field of healthcare, there's hundreds and thousands of opportunities. It's not just healthcare is like one job. So um, that kind of brings me into my next question, which, you know, you've been the director of several MHA programs. You've, you've been a professor. You've seen countless students begin and progress through their careers. When you think back to students who have been extremely successful in their careers, what do you think they took away or, or did or, or advice that they had that helped make them as successful as they were so that other students can consider that as they're beginning their journeys or, or beginning their careers through higher education and beyond? Great question. You know, this was a question when, um, in the 15 minutes that I would spend with students, uh, whether it was at Rush or Iowa uh, or somewhere else as program director, I got asked this a lot by students who were, you know, trying to get into the programs, but were also curious about what, what I would think. Uh, and I think they felt more comfortable, unlike the other three 30-minute interviews that were much more formal and asking specific questions. The, the, the time with me was more of just let's get to know each other. Let's talk about what you want to do. And, and, and I got asked that question a lot. And um, so I think first and foremost, um, take, take as much out of it as you can. You know, graduate school is a safe place. Um, launching your career in a fellowship or that first job, um, I think is a fairly safe place as well to sort of stretch yourself. So don't think about, and I know the two of you don't do this, minimally, what do I do? to do well in every class, uh, but, but what, can I, what can I maximally do? How can I excel? How, how can I contribute to my own learning? Um, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is be a great colleague. You know, I would tell the students in Iowa um, and, and everywhere I've been um, during the interviews and once they showed up for orientation, um, you know, look around, these are people that you're gonna know for the next 40 to 50 years. Um, regardless of whether or not you don't work with them, um, be great colleagues, be collaborative. Um, don't compete internally here. I'm okay if you go compete hard in case competitions <laughs> against the other graduate programs, because I like to win too, you know, but, uh, but, but don't compete with each other. Be collegial, be collaborative. And then I think that extends into thinking about mentors and relationships. I think the word networking, uh, I, the, the, the term bothers me a little bit because I think it's so much more about relationships. Um, the most joy I get out of work, and I'm getting a lot of joy out of being CEO of AUPHA because of the board that I work with, the incredible, small but incredible team we have, only seven of us 
at AUPHA. And then this community that I love so much. I mean, it was wonderful coming in and leading a community where I already know most of the members, but those relationships are so rewarding. Um, probably the most rewarding part of my work. And so, yes, you know, think about networking, use those networking skills that you're using. Think about, you know, who could be a mentor or a great coach for you, but it's so much more about the relationships. And by thinking about relationships, it's a two-way street. You know, you don't want someone to only be giving you their time and their advice and their talent and, and, and their expertise. You want to be giving back as well. You know, what do you bring to that relationship also? Um, and then I think the, the last piece of advice that I would give um, is, is advice that um, one of my, my most important mentors gave me. I've had some great mentors. I, I would say at least a half a dozen that have, I've been close to for a couple of decades. And this advice came from my boss at Rush. So the, the Rush program is completely embedded in Rush University Medical Center and the Rush System for Health. And so my boss was Peter Butler, who was president and COO of the Rush System for Health. He was also chair of the Department of Health Systems Management, which is wild to think about, you know. Uh, that would be like, you know, the CEO of, or COO of Cornell being the department chair at Cornell. So it's a very unique model. But Peter had given me advice, and I'd heard him give this advice probably uh, half a dozen years, maybe five or six years before I joined Rush. I moved from SLU to Rush. And then uh, he gave me the advice again uh, as I was thinking about changing jobs um, to go from Memphis to Iowa. And, uh, and Peter said, you know, Dan, I've always told people, you know, the, the best way to get that next great job, that next great opportunity is to do a bang up job in the job you have right now. Um, you know, focus on what you're doing now and people will come to you. And so, um, you know, yeah, every job I've had um, since SLU, um, I mean, of course I've applied for formally, but um, each of those jobs, they reached out to me and said, would you apply at Rush, at Memphis, at Iowa, and most recently with the AUPHA job, which is a dream job for me. You know, I, uh, when I'd announced um, summer of 2019 that I was gonna leave Iowa, uh, I was gonna leave academia, I called it preferment instead of retirement. I'm only going to do what I prefer to do from now on. But what I said to the uh, to the Iowa alumni and Iowa faculty and my students at the time, all of our staff was, you know, I'm not leaving for any negative reason. I mean, we've accomplished everything I thought we could have accomplished. And I'm leaving because, I, you know, for 26 years, I focused on one program at a time. I want to find a way where I can work with the whole field. And so my plan was, to be a consultant around strategic planning, helping programs improve. I've done some of that with several programs and then uh, clearly helping people with accreditation issues as well. I've done a lot of that. And then within two weeks of announcing that, uh, that I was gonna make this transition, my colleague and friend, Jerry Glandon, who was CEO of APH at the time, announced he was retiring. And the search committee and the search uh, firm reached out to me immediately and I was all in from the very beginning. So long process. Uh, I'd never, I'd never applied. And, and this happens, I think, when you apply for CEO, COO, any, any C-suite jobs with healthcare organizations as well. It's a very long interview process. And 
uh, selection process. It lasted about three, three and a half months, you know, going from 60 down to 20, down to 10, down to six, down to two candidates. And, and with each phase, I just got more and more excited about it. And I think the reason that, that I, that, that I was, that I felt so prepared and ready to do the job, and this applies to, to all of you as early careerists, is that um, each role I had, I put into it everything I could. Um, and so I think in Peter's advice, Peter Butler's advice of think about the job you have now, you know, what do you want to accomplish in the next two, three, four years? Um, and then the rest of your career is just going to, to roll out for the most part. You're going to have a lot of additional opportunities and you're going to have people coming to you um, at some point. Um, yeah. So I think those are the four or five things, the four or five pieces of advice I would give. Yeah, no, that was extremely helpful. And kind of going along the same lines, I know that in the fall, right when fellowship applications opened up, you posted several LinkedIn posts that got a lot of traction and that I even found super helpful. You gave a lot of great advice for people applying to fellowship programs, et cetera. I was wondering if you would mind kind of recapping some of the high points of that and talking through maybe some students out there who are considering fellowships in the future. Um, you know, what, what, maybe what would somebody take away from a fellowship? Why should they consider one? And then, you know, give some of the, the tips and pointers about, you know, going through that process, because it is very rigorous. It is very competitive, even, even now more so in COVID, since there's been less options. Yeah, and it is more competitive. And I, I do everything I can through ACHE and the other associations and through LinkedIn to encourage health systems and hospitals and large physician practices um, and associations to create more fellowships. We need more fellowship opportunities. Uh, ideally, you know, every, every uh, second year student who wants to do this would be able to do it. I'm glad you found it helpful. I had fun putting it together. So starting uh, in about 2004, those last three years I was at SLU, St. Louis University from 2004 to 2007, uh, I started working on this document. And when I got to Rush, um, Andy Garman and Diane Howard and Trisha Johnson and others had a similar document and we merged those together. Uh, I began calling them the ABCs. Uh, and it's because there was a, at the A document is your list of your fellowship sites, you know, where you want to apply. Uh, the B document is, uh, tell me what folks should know about you. The, either the, the, the fellows you're going to be talking to who are already there or the HR and other representatives. Um, and then a CV, you know, a really nice polished CV. And, uh, and then we would place a lot of emphasis uh, at all four of the programs that I was affiliated with on that professional development process. You know, we talked about that a little before the podcast started uh, at, at Iowa, that meant four semesters, all four semesters of professional development seminar, one credit each semester, um, and very intentional around um, everything that you can think of in terms of professional development, communication skills. I'm sure the same things that you're um, getting at Cornell. But that advice, um, Peyton, included, uh, and I think there were six posts, and I had to sort of I had to speed them up because <laughs> the, the application process was getting closer and closer. And so I was going to do one a week. And then I think I started doing a couple a week and I got a lot of great feedback about it and a lot of discussion out of it as well, as much discussion as you can get from LinkedIn and as appropriate. But I think it was about, you know, doing your homework. So any first year students going out to do administrative internships, you know, this is what your homework should be. 
you know, evenings and weekends, you should be thinking about if you want a fellowship and what you want out of the fellowship and where you'd like to be. Um, and so doing all of that homework, I think I talked about being strategic. Um, and I always told students, you know, do not waste your time or others' times and do not compete for fellowship sites you don't want, you know, do the homework. And if you think that this isn't a fellowship you'd accept, or this is an area of the country that you want to live in. Now, now if you still have questions about that, then yes, apply. But, um, you know, be selective around this. Um, get organized. The, the more organized you can get, the better, because as, as you both know, it is intense. Um, it, um, I mean, well, I know, Peyton, you applied for fellowships, but Christian, you didn't. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I, I applied mostly for consulting jobs. Um, and my job at Chen Med is, 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 it's technically, it's called a fellowship, but it's a, it's kind of a non-traditional fellowship. Yeah. And um, yeah, so getting organized though, you don't want to make mistakes. I mean, some of these, some of these places, I mean, Cleveland Clinic, UPMC, Lurie Children's Hospital, I mean, they'll get 200, 250 applications. Well, how do you, how do you make the first pass to get that down? Somebody's made a mistake. You know, there's misspellings. Someone didn't uh, submit everything that they were supposed to. So get organized and give people what they want. I always say, like I would say when um, when the accreditors were coming from Cami, I'm going to give people what they want. I'm going to give them what they want to see. <laughs> They're going to be happier if you give them what you want to see. So uh, have someone proofread your work. You know, um, none of us are perfect. Um, and so, um, you know, have a, a colleague a family member, um, proofread your work. Be strategic about who the, um, the, uh, the recommendation letters are coming from. And then I think I talked about, um, you know, the actual application process um, uh, and what you should stress there, which I think first and foremost is being true to yourself, being your real self. But I think I probably used the language being your best self, <laughs> so, you know, being well rested, being prepared, having the right mindset, uh, being as articulate as you possibly can. So being yourself, but being your best self on your best day for those uh, telephone or video or Zoom interviews and eventually on-site interviews. I imagine this past fall there were few on-site interviews. I mean, I'm not a program director anymore, but I imagine almost everything was digital, virtual, electronic. Um, and then the, I think the last thing was, a couple of the last things were, um, oh, on those visits, everybody is observing you, everybody. I would say, you know, if they've got folks picking you up in a van, if you're staying in a particular hotel, certainly the administrative staff, you know, they're gonna get as much input as they can from everyone. Be your real self, but be your best self. You know? And uh, they're thinking, you know, is this someone who would represent um, UPMC or Emory, you know, or Johns Hopkins well? Um, uh, be collaborative. I know you're competing against the other candidates, but be collaborative. Um, again, people call it networking, but it's about relationships. And, you know, you're going to meet some great people through this process, people that, um, you're going to want to get to know better and that you're going to want to get, you're going to want to be colleagues for a long time. And then wrapping up the process, um, as, as you both know, uh, even if you didn't apply for fellowships, you don't have much time. So um, you've got 24, 48 hours, perhaps the 
the NAFCAS system works a little bit differently in terms of being able to hold one of those offers at a time. And I'm sure um, the folks at Cornell do a nice job of explaining that to people who are interested in fellowships, Dr. Carmel and uh, Dr. Nichols and others. Um, and then uh, um, once you've accepted, you've accepted, you're done. I've had very few cases, but I've had a couple in 26 years where a student, a graduate student, even at great programs would accept a fellowship and then somehow not take our advice and do an interview the next week or the following week. That's a no-no. <laughs> when you accept, you're done. You're done. You immediately call the other fellowship sites. You thank them. You tell them they're done so they can focus on the other candidates. And then the last advice is, you know, like I talked about at the beginning of this is be good to your colleagues. So you're done. You've got your site set up. There are a lot of others who are still looking. Be as encouraging and supportive of them as you possibly can. What can you do now to help them with their process? Yeah, great advice all around. And uh, I, I know that I, I used that a lot and I found it super helpful. So I, I appreciate it. And Definitely recommend others listen to it as well as you consider maybe going into the fellowship process. Um, well, Dan, our last question is one we ask every person that we bring onto the podcast um, to get a kind of myriad of, of, of answers. And that is, what is a tool that you believe aspiring healthcare leaders should add to their toolkits? What is a tool? Um... Okay, so, so um, gosh, I have a lot. I mean, you can just, you, you would just need to look at the full menu of professional development seminar uh, sessions at Iowa to know why it takes up four semesters instead of just one or two. Um, meetings, um, we all do lots of meetings and the, the virtual environment hasn't stopped that. I mean, there are some days where I have seven, a few days, eight Zoom meetings during the day. Um, so I would say a tool of get as good as you can at meeting planning, meeting facilitation, knowing how to set up a good meeting, knowing how to facilitate a good meeting, knowing what the prep looks like before meetings. Uh, I mean, being able to facilitate a good meeting in 30 minutes or 50 minutes instead of it taking longer than that is challenging, but it's a great skill to have. Um, you want to know in advance what the agenda is, what's the purpose of the meeting. Is the meeting necessary or can just two people really meet and do this instead of having a full meeting? You want to be cognizant of people's time. And so we definitely had at least one session, I think maybe two, on this topic at Iowa in the MHA program and, uh, you know, how to stay on time, how, how to, how to I, I call it balance alert. Um, I had these little cards that we would use in the sessions with the students of, um, and we did a lot of team-based learning, but balance alert is, you know, if you've got something to contribute, say it, say it once, be concise, and then stop. That way, everybody else has an opportunity um, for airtime. Um, be cognizant if other people haven't contributed yet. Is there a way that you can facilitate or make them more comfortable in contributing? And so the prep, what you do during the meeting, and then the follow-up to the meeting is really important as well. And I'm not a big fan of 
full minutes, you know, um, everything that's said verbatim. It's really the most important points that were made and the action items and who's going to be responsible for them and what does the timeline look like with regard to getting them done and what do we want to get achieved before, you know, the full group of five, seven people get together again. So that would be my preference in terms of tools. So because we spend so much time in meetings. Yeah. You know, yeah, no, I think the amount of meetings has uh, has surely shocked me. And I think with Zoom too, people think, oh, it's much easier to have a meeting now. Um, and I, I think that's not necessarily true, but definitely getting used to those Zoom meetings is very helpful. So, well, Dan, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us. I, I know that Christian and I found it super helpful. I know that uh, I think our listeners will as well. So we really do appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate your time and, um, and that you asked me to do this. I'm really excited about it. I love podcasts. I think I'm doing about once a week now with, you know, usually with faculty and with programs. This may be the first one hosted by students, which is really cool. So thank you both for showing this initiative and, 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 and great, great wishes for you in finishing up in this long program at Cornell and uh, launching both of your careers. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you again, Dan. And for those of you listening, be sure to subscribe and check in for more from Health Conscious.